Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and joining me as always are our co-hosts, Institute Director Dr. Mac Grossman and economist Dr. Charlie Ballard. Later on, we'll be joined by our guest, Dr. Tara Kilbright of Michigan State University's Education Policy Innovation Collaborative. Dr. Kilbright is co-author of a recently released report aimed at understanding student learning and progress toward educational goals during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that will definitely be of some interest. Well, Charlie and Matt, as always, there's uh, a lot to talk about. There's an election coming up, going to be impacted by a lot of things. My dad was fond of saying that people vote on the two P's, their pocketbooks and their prejudices. So let's stick with the pocketbook issues right now, Charlie. What's your crystal ball telling you? Well, on on the pocketbook, uh, certainly uh, Republican advertisers think that that's uh, that's one of their strong points. Uh, They're uh, hitting uh, on the inflation issue. Um, Pull that a little closer, if you would. Okay. Um, And inflation is ever so slightly less than it was a few months ago, but it's still stubbornly high. Um, And, you know, we recently had the uh, announcement that Social Security recipients, their check in January will go up by more than 8%. So there are a lot of people whose income is going up fast enough to offset the rise in prices. But People don't like inflation, even if your real purchasing power is staying the same because your income is going up by 8% and prices are going up by 8%. People don't like it. So that is definitely a headwind for Democrats. Um, what's, what's the, I mean, the economy still seems to be moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, jobs, well-paying jobs. Like you said, people's incomes, many of them are, are keeping pace with inflation, even though we're running at 7 or 8%. But what, what's the reason for the uh, high prices? Well, um, the high prices are a, a combination of a whole bunch of things. Uh, people had a lot of money in their pockets uh, with the pay, uh, payment, uh, paycheck protection programs, the stimulus checks, the enhanced unemployment insurance. And in a lot of cases, there were limitations on what they could buy. And we're continuing, even Two and a half years into COVID, we, we are continuing to see a variety of uh, supply chain issues, um, uh, some of them involving climate. Uh, if you're uh, the, the producers in Fort Myers, Florida are not making a whole lot of stuff right now. Um, and you mentioned earlier that the uh, Mississippi River is at historic lows, and that's going to disrupt some things. So there's just a whole bunch of supply chain issues um, combined with what I think was overly expansive fiscal policy, and that's a formula for inflation. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve is trying hard to tamp that down. The problem with relying so heavily on the Fed is that it has only a limited number of tools at its disposal. Basically, it can affect the credit markets. It can do things that will have an effect on interest rates. And so, the sectors that are sensitive to interest rates, those are being affected. The housing sector is unquestionably slowing down. Um, but the rest of the economy still has a fair amount of momentum. Job growth has slowed, but it is still pretty impressive. Um, so I, I don't think we're in a recession yet. I think there's a very good chance that we will be in a recession at some point in the coming months. Uh, impossible to say exactly when. 
so so it's a, as so often it's a kind of a mixed picture but inflation is the big negative uh, the positives are that, yes, the economy is still growing, uh, although the Federal Reserve's policies are, are pretty pretty stringent. And I saw where retailers also said that they had a great month in September. I know that uh, holiday sales are, are starting early to try and keep that momentum going. So it seems as if people do have money in their pocket to spend. Uh, yes, they do. And um, a, a, a lot of sectors are, are continuing to expand. Uh, I There was a report Earlier this week, manufacturing, the manufacturing sector, which of course is important for Michigan, um, had its best year since 2008. So um, there are a lot of signs of strength. Um, I've said before on on our podcasts, the huge challenge is for the Fed to have a soft landing, to somehow rein in inflation without causing a recession. That's a very difficult combination to pull off. Um, we'll see whether that happens. I'm, I'm. Have they ever really been able to do that? There have been times. Uh, certainly, the the last big bout of of inflation, 1979, 80, 81, uh, we had a very severe recession. Actually, kind of a two consecutive recessions. So they didn't have a soft landing then. I think it's possible, but it's very difficult. Yeah. And Matt, as Charlie noted in the beginning there, this all has implications for uh, elections, huge elections. We're going to have an election? That's what I understand. Oh, oh really? Okay. Okay. Good I, to know. I, I understood. I understand that. People are already voting, so <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm guessing there's one coming up. But both uh, nationally and here in the state of Michigan, lots of, uh, lots of important elections uh, locally, statewide, and across the country. What what are you seeing in terms of the impact of the economy uh, on voter attitudes? Well, as Charlie mentioned, uh, the economy and inflation are the number one issue mentioned in Republican advertising. Uh, and two, uh, very visible economic indicators that tend to uh, influence public opinion uh, are not in Democrats' favor. So one, obviously, is gas prices, which we've talked about before, have an effect on public opinion in elections, even independent of the inflation rate overall, as a very highly visible price. Uh, and second is the stock market, uh, which also tends to influence public opinion, uh, independent of its uh, economic uh, importance. But I would caution against reading too much into the economy is causing uh, the sort of return to normalcy that we're seeing in the electoral cycle. We all knew that Gretchen Whitmer was unlikely to win the state by 14 or 17 percentage points as she jumped out to uh, an early lead because we're a closely divided state. And in midterm elections, it's the party out of the presidency uh, that tends uh, to gain. So so it was looking like Democrats might uh, be able to get some kind of an asterisk election where that wouldn't occur, uh, primarily because of the abortion decision by the Supreme Court. But now that we have a little bit more time to look at it, it looks like that might have energized Democratic voters earlier in the process, but not, might not have necessarily moved voters from voting Republican to voting Democratic. But I would caution against saying the Republican attack ads are, are working because most of what is happening is an increase in Republican support, right? So Tudor Dixon was unlikely to remain below 40% because we have all of these Republican, normally Republican voters who are still in the undecided camp. They didn't know 
much about her. And they are learning, and they're learning that they, they're really mostly Republican voters. And so you see the same thing in the attorney general race, in the secretary of state race. Uh, and I would caution people also in the state legislature. I know we don't get polls in the state legislature, and the Democrats are confident because of the redistricting process that they're competitive uh, in state House and state Senate races. But if the national U.S. House vote moved three percentage points toward the Republicans, then on average, the vote for state legislature and state Senate also moved three percentage points uh, toward Republicans. So if you don't have a poll, then you should assume it's moving in the Republican direction like the rest of the national electorate. And no matter what, uh, the um, analysis right now is that the Republicans will pick up seats nationally in the Congress. Is that right? Uh, there are some um, possibilities still uh, that Democrats uh, will retain kind of where they are, especially in the U.S. Senate, uh, in the U.S. House, uh, less so. Uh, and we should keep in mind that 2018 was a normal-sized midterm backlash to an incumbent president. So they are normally quite large, uh, and it could be that Democrats overperform the normal backlash and still lose a lot of seats. They could still lose 25 seats in the U.S. House uh, and still be doing better than normal uh, for uh, a midterm president. So you add to that that Biden's approval rating has remained low. We have uh, economic problems um, that are being blamed as usual on the party in power. Uh, and it, sh it, it should be uh, hard to overperform normal even, much less actually uh, win an election. Let's talk about the state races for a minute. You, you touched on that. And there has been a lot of discussion about the impact of the new maps regarding redistricting, uh, giving uh, the Democrats, uh, maybe especially the Senate in the Senate, uh, an opportunity to uh, take take control for the first time since uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Um, what what are you hearing out there right now about that possibility? Well, um, both of our legislative chambers are on national lists of the, the most uh, up in the air uh, for this election. So I just saw one yesterday that had only seven chambers as toss-ups, and both of our chambers were on that list of seven. Now, that's almost exclusively because of redistricting. Most states did not do what we did with the Redistricting Commission, which is to move a map that was overwhelmingly favorable toward Republicans, no matter what the statewide vote looked like, to a map that was very near even. If the statewide vote were to go towards the Democrats, then they would be more, much more likely to win a majority than they have been in the past. So we're on there because of redistricting, um, but the Democrats still have to get more state statewide votes. Uh, and in a normal midterm election, uh, they wouldn't. There were many, several uh, electoral cycles where statewide in races for the state Senate, uh, Democrats got more votes, but Republicans nevertheless maintained control of the chamber. That's That kind of imbalance is less likely with these new, re, uh, new districts. The nice, uh, the nice part about the new districting maps is that we'll also get a chance to see how the state is changing uh, with uh, these uh, maps. So there are... Um, there are seats in kind of perennially competitive uh, areas, um, like the outside of the Detroit suburbs. There are uh, seats in 
places that are trending toward Republicans but are ancestrally Democratic, uh, like uh, Down River and the Saginaw area. And then there are places that are trending Democratic but uh, um, uh, usually Republican, like the Grand Rapids area and West Michigan. So uh, we'll get a chance to see, sort of see, are the same trends that we saw in the last three election cycles continuing? Uh, or, uh, you know, are Democrats retaining some competitiveness in some of these races or Republicans retaining some competitiveness in yeah. others? Let's let's go back to the issues for a second. You know, six months, maybe even three months ago, we were sitting here talking about what the issues may be uh, during the election cycle, especially here in Michigan. Um, and I think we all agreed at that point in time that COVID and the way Governor Whitmer handled COVID might be right at the top of the list. Or education issues uh, around critical race theory, might we also might see that as a statewide issue. And although we've seen uh, education issues certainly bubble up at the local level, neither of those really have been mentioned as a statewide issue uh, against uh, Governor Whitmer or the, or the Democrats. It's really been on the economy. It's, it's been uh, one side hammering the economy, the other side hammering reproductive rights. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, Governor Whitmer really saw an opening to define Tudor Dixon and did so in the first few weeks that she was a general election candidate as the no exceptions on abortion candidate. And that was sort of all people knew about uh, her. Uh, now, uh, Republicans are on the air uh, and advertising much more, uh, and so they're able to get their message out. I disagree a little bit on the education front. In terms of actual on-the-ground retail politics, Tudor Dixon is spending an enormous amount of time talking about culture war issues uh, in education, uh, and uh, that is different than other states. So our, our Republicans are talking more uh, about education uh, than other Republican other candidates. Well, speaking about education, let's now welcome Dr. Kilbride. Um, welcome to the show, Dr. Kilbride. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Your report is one of a series of reports seeking to understand student achievement during the COVID-19 pandemic using benchmark assessment data provided by school districts. Can you tell us what you found? Sure. Uh, well, in short, it's really a combination of good and bad news. Um, Overall, we're seeing clear improvements in student achievement and in student growth compared to or this past year compared to the first full year during the pandemic. Uh, but this is generally uh, still less than would have been expected in a typical year before the pandemic. So while students are getting closer to those pre-pandemic norms, they're, they're still behind. And it'll take a long time to catch up to where they would have been had they not experienced these unprecedented disruptions to their learning and schooling. Uh, so to get a little deeper into uh, what we've saw specifically and some of the good and bad points, uh, looking at the cohort of students in 2021-22 uh, and comparing them to students in the same grade the year before, we saw that students this past year started further behind than students before them. But by the end of the year, they had outperformed the first pandemic year cohort. So that shows us that uh, student learning is starting to return to those pre-pandemic rates. Um, but in order to really make up for the missed opportunities to learn or disrupted opportunities the year before, they would have to grow at an even faster rate than students before the pandemic. And that's not something that we're seeing. Is that something that's even possible in your uh, mind's eye? 
There's a lot of variation in uh, growth from student to student, but for the entire population of students uh, to, to be growing at that faster rate in a short amount of time is probably not very realistic. Uh, the, I know in the in the first year, uh, there was some evidence that it was sort of the already lowest performing districts that were continuing to have even even more disproportionate uh, issues. Is that still true? It's sort of a... Absolutely. Yeah. A, a lot of those districts are in the same places that were hit hardest by the pandemic in, in a lot of ways. And for those reasons, they were you know, less likely to offer in-person instruction. Uh, in 2020-21, more likely to have to close temporarily because of uh, local outbreaks in the following year. When they were closed, uh, some of those districts are less likely to have the same resources to provide effective remote or hybrid instruction, and it was certainly more difficult. And was there overall evidence that the uh, schools that were out of in-person session more were the ones that had the hardest time catching up? Yes, absolutely. Uh, students in districts that uh, that either didn't offer in-person instruction at all uh, in 2020-21 or, or only offered it for uh, shorter amounts of time throughout the year were less likely to make a typical year of growth. And the large proportions of those students actually didn't demonstrate growth at all as far as we can measure on their benchmark assessments. Once most of those students returned to in-person the following year, those gaps between these districts started to diminish, but they're still there. So going forward, uh, one obvious policy recommendation would be try hard to keep schools open. Uh, beyond that, are there policies that you uh, envision that could help to reduce the, the losses, uh, you know, over the next two, three years, however long it might take? Sure. Well, I think one of the important points to consider is that students weren't all affected equally. And it'll be important to target specific subgroups and types of schools where uh, these impacts were most severe and to be mindful of the extent of the uh, disrupted learning in those places, because if you were to only look at the average student, you might be missing how far behind and how much some students are struggling and the interventions that they need are likely different. Right. Is this across grade levels as well? For instance, did high school students uh, catch up more quickly than elementary school students or middle school students? Uh, are, are we seeing any of that data? Some of the comparisons across grade levels have been a little inconsistent. One reason for that is that it's, it's very difficult to measure uh, learning for some of the early elementary grades it, when we use fall 2020 tests as a baseline because uh, so many of those, or so many students in general were learning in, uh, at home at that time and they took their tests at home. And because of that, there were very variable conditions in their testing environments and the amount of help or assistance that they had while they were taking the tests. And uh, we find that that adds a lot of uncertainty in their results and makes it difficult to understand how far behind they really were and how much they grew versus how, uh, accurate their their initial scores were. Uh, with older students, uh, 
there's, I think, less concern in general about the impact of remote instruction, where it seems that in-person instruction is especially critical for younger students. But that being said, a, a lot of districts that may have started bringing uh, younger students back in person earlier on didn't always offer that option to, to middle school students. And our study only goes through eighth grade, but the same is true for, for high school. Mm -hmm. So it is possible that those students were impacted to a greater extent simply because they weren't always offered in-person instruction as soon as younger students were. And where does your data come from again? So these are from the benchmark assessments that uh, Michigan districts were required to offer, or were required to administer to all kindergarten through eighth grade students in the fall and spring of each school year, starting in 2020-21. Uh, they're not all the same assessments. Districts were able to choose from a list of approved assessments or to use a locally developed assessment or anything that they'd prefer that meets a minimum set of requirements. So of course that kind of complicates the data and makes it difficult to uh, synthesize and uh, understand what's happening at a state level, but these are common themes that we saw across all of them. And will we be continuing to do longitudinal studies of this moving forward? As I noted, this is a, one of a series of reports that uh, the collaborative has been doing, and it is a collaborative, right? I mean, um, yes. between the state and, and, and you, and also, are there any other university institutes involved? Yes, the Michigan Education Data Center out of the University of Michigan is also a partner in this work, as is the Michigan Data Hub. And then among the state partners are, of course, the Michigan Department of Education and the Center for Educational Performance and Information. So how long, so will you be, con again, will you be continuing to study these impacts over the coming years? The uh, initial uh, law that required this testing and the related reports I think only mandated the first report in the series, and then there have been subsequent updates each year requiring further reports. So with the current uh, laws that are on the books, we're only required to continue these through, I think, the next school year. So our next report would be around this time in 2023. Mm -hmm. But it's possible that there will be subsequent updates to the legislation that, that would fur further this work. What are the odds that these students are going to catch up? It depends. It, it, there's a lot that we still don't know about how education and the pandemic will evolve and how, how quickly or whether uh, conditions will return to normal while these students are still in, in their education. But the, it, it, this isn't unique to Michigan. Right. Our findings really mirror what states across the country and some national studies have been finding. So we're certainly in good company at the very least. You emphasize the, the vast differences across districts, within districts, depending upon the, the socioeconomic status of the student and so many other things, which makes me think that some students will indeed catch up and mm -hmm. others, unfortunately, less likely to do so. Right, and, and there are large proportions of students who don't need to catch up, who uh, did fine during the pandemic, uh, particularly if they had access to in-person instruction or uh, other options that, that uh, made the pandemic less disruptive to their learning, then it wasn't necessarily this uh, huge uh, impactful disruption like it was in so many other cases. So that's why it's so important to not just look at the averages and what happened on average, but look at the groups that were really impacted and uh, determine the next steps and the needs based on those groups. 
So Republicans are uh, unsurprisingly trying to mm-hmm. lay the blame for these uh, test scores uh, on Governor Whitmer and among other uh, Democrats. Uh, and one of the points that they make is that we've increased education spending um, at the state level. We've equalized it across districts. Uh, and of course, at the national level, we had a large infusion of uh, resources that school districts could spend. Uh, is, is there any evidence that that spending was effective or uh, sort of limited uh, these declines? I, mean, I, I think this is going to be kind of a long-term question where uh, a lot of these initiatives are aiming to uh, to improve uh, staffing issues and uh, get new teachers into the pre- profession and staying. And those are things that take years and years to, to see play out. So it's difficult to say now, but uh, it's encouraging that uh, the state has been prioritizing these these issues. Yeah, Matt, I, I think that's a great point. Charlie had asked about what policies could the state implement moving forward. I think it's going to be a, a question more of the resources that we have. How can they best be used to target and help those students uh, across the state, within school districts, within those within those groups that have had a hard time catching up to help them catch up, whether that's tutoring help, more staffing, um, so on and so forth. Well, as usual, the the party's answers tend to be now more than ever. We need to do what I already thought we could do, wanted to do before the pandemic. So uh, Republicans say it's about choice and opportunity and competition, and Democrats say it's about money, um, uh, primarily for the the, the resources for teachers. Um, is there some innovative examples, though, of say the use of the the federal money to to help students uh, that are behind catch up, or any school districts that you can think of that are doing something special to try to catch up their students? Some of the, the researchers working with EPIC have uh, been uh, looking at case studies of best practice districts, um, looking at you know which districts outperformed where we would have expected given their uh, demographics, the mode of instruction that they were offering. And uh, this is ongoing work, but they did release an initial report at the same time as our quantitative report. I'm not as familiar with their findings, but I know that you know, uh, the districts that tended to do well or to not be as impacted uh, during the pandemic, despite uh, having to go remote, uh, were places that had strong uh, leadership structures in place that had a consistent and dedicated teaching staff, uh, places that had strong relationships already with families and uh, access to high quality technology. Uh, I, I guess this doesn't really answer how t- how to move forward for the districts that don't have those things or didn't already have those things, but it certainly points to some areas that that, that policies may focus on. Anything else we can look forward to from uh, the collaborative in terms of reports moving forward? Sure. Well, we're looking at a follow-up year uh, for the qualitative study, looking at how are these districts doing in a second year and possibly how other districts are doing that maybe uh, weren't highlighted as best practice districts in the first year of the pandemic but made uh, 
abnormally uh, positive gains in the next year. So I think that could really speak to what works uh, as far as recovery and give us real insight into the context and what's happening uh, that we can't get just by looking at numbers alone. Uh, we'll also have another quantitative report around this time next year that will uh, follow the same districts and the same outcomes through the end of the 2022-23 school year. Well, I want to thank you and the collaborative for the work that you're doing. It's certainly going to be useful information uh, as lawmakers uh, come back to Lansing starting next year. Uh, we're going to have anywhere from 50 to 60, uh, maybe more, maybe less, uh, new state lawmakers in both the House and the Senate. And it's information like this that's uh, very, imp very important for them to use uh, in in their deliberations as they move forward creating policy and programs. So thank you very much uh, for being here. Appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Charlie and Matt, always a pleasure to have this time with you. Uh, any last thoughts, any predictions for the election? When we come back, the election will have been over, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about then. But uh, yeah, I noticed that Matt carefully said would, could, might, <laughs> but never really gave a prediction. We still expect Governor Whitmer to win, um, but it's not going to be by the, the margins that it looked like uh, at the beginning. Um, and I, She herself has said she's not yeah, expecting right. the, the blowout that a few surveys suggested, and, and there were probably technical problems with those, with those polls. <laughs> we... Uh, I, I will predict that I think that the statewide candidates will get very similar margins. So I, I think it's been very difficult um, to distinguish among the candidates. And so while it may have seemed like, wow, we have Secretary of State and Attorney General nominees that um, on, only rose to prominence on the basis of uh, their complaints about the 2020 election, it's not clear that voters will hear that. Um, I think they'll just hear, hear the Republican candidates and hear the Democratic candidates and which way uh, am I leaning. And we didn't even talk about the ballot proposals, and so those could bring some significant policy changes to Michigan after the election as well. So I think we'll have plenty to talk about next month. Indeed. Thank you both very much. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.